Thank you, Jane, for the, for the lovely music, and also thanks for the piano. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> and thank you all for coming out. Uh, it was so faithfully early in the morning when it's cold, and that bed is still pretty inviting. A uh, couple of, uh, of uh, housekeeping items that I probably should mention. I think in the, the ABC has a supply, they told me it was true, of, of a book, some of, of which the talks, uh, I've taken the talks from uh, this week, uh, Cleansing Fire, Healing Streams, Experiencing God's Love Through Prayer. Um, this is a publication of Pacific Press, and it's still, still there. You can get it from the ABC. Um, Well, very good. So it's, a, it's the best deal out there. Very good. I will tell you that uh, that writing books for denominational public publishing houses does not uh, yield a great deal of, of income, um, which is fine. It, I just hope people read them. Um, and another book, which is now out of print, but was around uh, of mine, Grace at 30,000 Feet um, and Other Unexpected Places, is now as a, published as an ebook online. You can go and, and purchase it and download it from Logos.com. Logos is the largest publisher of, uh, of Christian software, of Bible software, that type of thing. And they have a whole Adventist division. They've, they've worked out deals with the publishing houses. And uh, you can find a lot of Adventist resources, uh, commentaries and... Uh, all kinds of things on there, um, research materials, uh, and this is this is one of the items. Uh, that book is one of the items they offer. The other thing, uh, Jane, earlier in the week mentioned uh, the weekly email. In 1998, um, I had sent to about six people just some thoughts on on uh, kind of devotional thoughts. And word of mouth spread, and by Christmas there were probably 200 people who had requested this. And on the first week of, in the first week of April, um, I didn't really plan to do this. And I've been doing it weekly now since 1998, and it involves a great deal of time, often, often late at night. But I always journaled, so this is, this is, uh, so that, this is just basically the journaling. But it... Uh, in the first week of 1999, of April, um, about a thousand people subscribed to it over one, one devotional. And uh, it's, uh, it had to do, all, of all things, about uh, uh, softball, baseball really, but it, it, uh, it struck a chord. And so when that uh, took off, now there's over 5,000 people worldwide. I never send it out to anybody who doesn't request it except some listservs send it out, and it goes, I, I, what I've always intended was say something positive about God to busy, busy professionals uh, sitting at their computers on Monday morning. It goes to a far wider group than that, but it goes into the major law firms in the United States. It goes into um, uh, plants and, and engineering firms and that types of things where I would have never imagined the CEO of Minnesota, of um, 
American Public Media, which has Minnesota Public Radio and Garrison Keeler and all that, sends it out uh, on a listserv and uh, uh, several conferences uh, do that and have done that. And so I was kind of surprised uh, because it doesn't fit. I will just warn you that it's, it's, not, a, it's not the typical soundbite blog. Um, it's, it's, it's longer than that. It comes in email. You can't go to a blog and find it. It's just if somebody subscribes and sends it. But the address for it, all you do is just say subscribe. It's to K Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N. K and uh, the most common name in, in Norway, by the way. K Hansen, K-H-A-N-S-E-N, at Clayson, C-L-A-Y-S-O-N, Law, L-A-W, all one word, ClaysonLaw.com. And just say subscribe. And if you want to unsubscribe after you read it, you, you can unsubscribe. Herb Douglas, who many of you I'm sure knows, sends it out to his subscription list periodically, in which every time Herb does that, um, I get a, a ton of, of subscriptions. Um, and so worldwide, I've literally heard from people all the way from, from Alaska to Zimbabwe, <laughs> Um, a student missionary in Mongolia wrote me once, a, uh, a, a Russian exchange student in Beijing found it somehow, and how you'd find this in China, I'm not sure entirely, but she did. So it, it, um, it seems to minister to people, but it's just, I, I try to really say something positive that's not just saccharine, sweet kind of thing, but, but something substantive about God and God's love. K Hansen, K H A N S E N at C L A Y S O N Clayson Law L A W. It's my law firm, ClaysonLaw.com. I'll put the address in the newsletter this evening. And so anyway, um, that uh, and it's you know again you can subscribe. If you don't like it, you can unsubscribe. If I ever write about uh, marital relations, I, it's funny over the years what happens. Writing, writing Adventist, uh, writing books and going to uh, book signings and that type of thing, one of the things you find out very quickly, the number one sellers in the church besides uh, uh, new versions of, of Spirit of Prophecy books tend to be books about, as you'd imagine, last day events, then about children, about parents and children and, and evangelism and, and, and uh, reaching your children, and, uh, and health would be in that order. But another thing I know, you know, just find um, interesting things. Uh, if I will write about marriage in the Word of Grace uh, email, I'll have, I'll have more unsubscriptions. I, I get it, it probably subscriptions to unsubscriptions run about 20 to 1. But the, the, uh, I will get more if I ever write. And I don't know why people are so unhappy about marriage out there, but apparently they are. So, and it doesn't, I mean, it's not one. It's, it's multiple over the years. Uh, the, um, or, or actually, I'd, I'd be brought down. If I write, ever write about marital infidelity, that will draw the, the, the non-subscriptions. And I don't know whether people are involved in it and unhappy that they're having to read about it, or I don't know what to think. But anyway, the... Uh, so that's the, the, the books there. Um, <clears throat> I've tried to, uh, this week, just talk about some aspects of, of prayer and, and the life and, 
uh, that uh, really take us to a deeper relationship with God. And this morning I want to talk about one of the real difficult stories of the gospel. Um, this story came alive, I'm not going to talk much about it this morning, with something that I'll just get the, yesterday I talked about maggots, and that probably wasn't so good before breakfast, but uh, this morning, uh, this morning I, I uh, will say something at the start. You know, the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, which is uh, one of the more unusual stories in the, uh, in the scripture, um, you know, people try to work their way through with the idea of the afterlife that's there and everything else. But it's, it's, a, it's a story that took on a whole new meaning to me when I realized that when, when uh, Lazarus wasn't even, you know, he was just getting the, the, the crumbs or whatever, the, the bread that was, was thrown to the dogs. The dogs were not kosher. There were a lot of them around apparently, but they were kind of like the garbage disposals of that society. And they'd often be hanging around, but the guests at the table, they didn't have, obviously, a lot of cloth, and they didn't have a lot of paper for napkins. So what they would do is take bread, because they would eat by, by hand, and they do that, that way in the Middle East. And to, to keep their fingers clean, they'd wipe it off with bread and throw it, and the dogs would eat on the table, and that's what Lazarus. So it wasn't basically, you know, until you understand that bread and the, the human saliva that would acquire on, on fingers, you don't get that story. And, when, and, and once that, that became real to me, I realized, you know, Lazarus had absolutely nothing as, as told by Jesus. And it was, a, it was a story, it's a parable, but as it's told, he had nothing going for him. I mean, if, if you know, we say um, colloquially, not, not, not very nicely, you know, uh, that's not that's not worth you know spit, um, and that was basically all he had to go with. And this is a story that involves that a little bit, as you'll hear. But I'm not going to dwell on that. I just wanted to pass that on to you. There's the napkins, the bread napkins. That's the kind of a key to what Lazarus was suffering with, and he depended entirely upon grace. And of course, later on, that proved to be. Uh, extremely valuable, whereas the rich man depended upon being rich in works and performance. And um, um, finally, you know, read Moses. Moses would point to Jesus. The law would point to Jesus. And if 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 that wasn't going to do it for him, he said, for uh, involving his brothers, he said, but he wanted Lazarus to go back and tell his brothers what. Uh, what he'd now found out, that uh, what he'd done all his life wasn't going to do it for him. And, uh, and uh, Lazarus said, well, if, you know, if Moses won't do it for him, nothing, nothing will. And that was kind of Jesus' point. This is all pointing to something. It's pointing to Jesus. So this morning for the text is Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Jesus had left that place and went away to the desert of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, 
Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Has someone ever constructed some kind of wall to keep you out? Perhaps it was a barrier of wealth or, or money or education or race or religion or gender that left you on the outside. These kinds of walls are erected out of human reactions like fear and pride and prejudice and selfishness and hatred and greed. I received a report that a um, surgical department of a healthcare client of mine was scheduling appointment for appointments for patients living in, in certain zip codes four to six months out, while patients from more affluent zip codes were getting appointments in, uh, to see a surgeon within one or two weeks. And of course, if you need to see a surgeon, timing is really important. And so I conducted a secret shopper investigation. And that means I had somebody, I had an attorney in Los Angeles call in and uh, as, as if uh, she was a patient. And the allegations proved to be true. And the reason for the discrimination was, was, that, was pretty obvious. It was economic and it was racial. And it was clearly a violation of the civil rights of the, uh, of the, of the poor patients because they were uh, eligible for Medi-Cal. And Medi-Cal, one of its conditions of, of, uh, of participation in that program is that you have to offer the same services on an equal basis to everyone. And so I confronted the, uh, the chair of that surgical department, and he was unapologetic. And he said, Kent, you know, it's just like it used to be in the South. They might have to ride in the back of the bus, but they still get to ride the bus. And his words just brought me right up, right up out of my chair in anger. And he said, why are you so upset? And I said, my question is, why aren't you upset? And that was really my stunned apply. Why aren't you so upset? I said, you know better than this. And I said, even if you don't know better than this in your professional ethics, you're a Christian. And you ought to know better than that. So some administrator sitting there said, Kent, are you sure you're not the, you and, and uh, Carrie, my colleague, he said, are you sure that you and Carrie aren't, the, aren't, the, aren't the, the real liberal Democrats here? Because the administrator prized him, prided himself on being that. And I said, no, but I hope we're Christians. Um, walls can prevent, can prevent us from reaching healing compassion and can protect our prejudices and our selfishness. But walls can also be moved. In the Second World War, a group of soldiers was fighting in the rural countryside of France. And during the intense battle, one of, their, one of the, their members of their unit was killed. And so his buddies took this American soldier up, and they didn't want to leave his body in the battlefield. They were very close. And they decided to give him a Christian burial. They remembered that there was a church a few miles uh, back behind the, them with they had advanced the line forward. And uh, they remembered seeing a small cemetery in the grounds around that church. And it had been surrounded by a white fence. So after receiving permission to take their, uh, their friend's body to the cemetery, they set out for that church. They got there just before sunset. And there, 
they went up to the uh, what looked to be the parish house and they knocked on the door and an old priest frail uh, bent over came to the door his deeply weathered face uh, had in it real fierce eyes that kind of flashed with wisdom and passion he said to him our friend was killed in battle and we want to give him a church burial he just blurted that out and apparently the priest understood what they were saying although he spoke only very broken English he said I'm sorry but we, but we can bury only those of the same faith here the weary grieving soldiers turned to walk away in resignation but the old priest called after him you can bury him outside the fence and so the cynical exhausted soldiers dug a grave buried their friend just outside the fence they finished just about nightfall they said a quick prayer and and uh, left little mementos in the grave and went went back to their unit and the next morning um, they were ordered to move out but the group were given permission just a little time to go back they, they missed him so much they just wanted to see him see the grave one last time and they raced back to the little church for one final goodbye and when they arrived they couldn't find the gravesite tired and confused uh, they knocked on the door of the church they asked the old priest if they if they knew where they buried their friend they said it was dark last night and we were exhausted we must have been disoriented and a smile flashed across the old, old priest's face and he said after you left last night I couldn't sleep so I went outside early this morning and I moved the fence that story is is wonderful precisely because mercy and justice won out over exclusion and denial the grace of God prevailed and faith and hope and love were revived walls and and fences can block the flow of mercy and they can block love and they can deny hope and this brings me to the topic this morning because hope is the motivation of prayer Nothing can destroy the motivation to pray like despair. We all know desperate prayers, but there is a point where, as Solomon wrote in Proverbs, as, as hope is deferred, you know, it makes the heart sick. And you can wait a long, long time and things get worse and worse and worse and don't turn around in despair. And finally, prayer is one of those things that can drop along the wayside. Jesus said that we need to pray always and not lose heart. That's in Luke 18.1. And sometimes, though, there are walls that just seem to loom too high and too wide and cast shadows too great for us to overcome by any means. I actually have thought more than once looking at something, it looks like you're facing El Capitan in, you, in Yosemite, that great granite cliff without a, without a rope or anything to, to climb it with. And you just pray, Lord, I've prayed this prayer before. Lord, just show me some handholds and some footholds. Uh, you know, I, I have no idea how this thing is going to be surmounted. You can move it. You can get me over it. But I don't know how handholds and footholds. Um, but is Jesus the answer in those situations or will despair win out? In our scripture this morning, 
The woman was despairing and desperate. Her daughter was a mess and in serious trouble. Devil possessed. And this is a contemporary problem. Uh, our youth succumb to drugs and alcohol. Sexual abuse and exploitation are all around us in a society that, as I said the, the first day I was here, prizes sophistication more than it prizes maturity. You know, our kids get sophisticated real, real quick, but they don't get mature, left to their own. I mean, it takes the family, it takes, uh, you know, the home, the church, the school, really to protect against that. Mental illness is prevalent, more than we'd like to think. It used to be when I first began to work with universities, that if students got in trouble for, for typical things, and you knew what they were going to get in trouble for, and the, and the discipline was, would follow a, a, a route that we would all pretty, pretty well know. Now it's not unusual on expulsion to go get a threat assessment from some mental health professional. Is this person going to get a gun and come back and shoot somebody? And since I primarily represent Adventist institutions, you can understand that's kind of a jarring uh, thought. Um, mental illness is a serious problem for a large percentage of college students. According to a recent American College Health Association survey, almost one out of every three students reported feeling so depressed within the previous 12 months that it was difficult to function. About 45% of students felt things were, were hopeless, and 50% felt overwhelming anxiety. That means on any given day, one out of every two of these students were dealing with some kind of, of, of mental illness or depression, uh, which is mental illness, overwhelming enough to affect their daily lives. And unfortunately, I again tell you, as, as legal counsel for Adventist College and Universities, things are not as different for our students as we might hope. The woman in our, te in our text had lost her daughter to demonic torment and couldn't get her back. What does one do in that situation? When the delight of life, and you know what I mean, that kind of light in the eyes has faded from your child's eyes and satanic power has taken them far beyond the safe and secure boundaries of home and belief. Where does one turn when a father's stomach churns with dread and a mother's heart turns to lead? What comes next when everything, and I mean everything, you've tried has turned to ashes? I've worked through many situations or attempted to work them through with parents and that type of thing. And just the, if I could only get them away from those friends, if I could only get them away from the, from the drugs, the alcohol. Um, had a father call me at Loma Linda about a year ago. I have never met this man. He and I have corresponded and, and talked, and a longtime Adventist worker. And his, his, his son was hopelessly enmeshed in, in alcohol. When I say hopelessly, they're still trying, but rehab program after rehab, lost job after lost job, talking about somebody in his 30s. And uh, so he said, I have no place to turn. And I said, I know you somewhat. And, you know, so I prayed with him. I found him uh, somebody to help uh, in San Diego, uh, an attorney, because that's where the son was, and um, tried to work through. And he said afterwards, he said, you know, I, we just have, you turn to the Lord, but says sometimes, you know, you need, you need the Lord to come in a, in, a, in, a, in a form that has flesh and blood. 
And, uh, you know, he said, I didn't have any place else to go but to make that call. And I, I have stayed in contact with him since and the, the, uh, the efforts and struggles of those parents to kind of keep their son alive, just alive, has been staggering. Those situations you may turn to Jesus as never before. But what if Jesus seems to be the possession of someone else, someone cleaner, someone brighter, more pious, more prosperous, seemingly more worthy than you are? If you ever want to read a prayer struggle about that kind of thing, just read Psalm 73. The woman was a Gentile, Gentile woman, an outsider from the provinces of Tyre and Sidon, where polytheistic um, Greco-Roman uh, and pagan cultures swirled around in kind of confused superstition. Gentiles were held in contempt by the Jews who believed that salvation was their unique possession. And prejudice and exclusion on the grounds of race and religion just can build high and seemingly impenetrable, immovable walls. And what do you do when you want to get the attention of someone over on the other side of a, of a big wall? Do you yell, hey, is anyone over there? Can you hear me? We need to talk. Is it okay to pray like that? It was a great shout that brought down the walls of Jericho. And shouting helped Gideon's little band defend the, the Midianites. The Israelites would greet the, the Ark of the Covenant coming into camp and, and enter battle with shouts. There are many references to shouting to the Lord in the Psalms, and sometimes all you can do is yell, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. And it helps if you're going to shout to somebody over a wall like that that you get their name right. And this woman did. Somehow, she'd figured out who Jesus really was and is, and even though his disciples, you know, really hadn't yet got his identity clear, um, she did. She used his Jewish messianic title in addressing him, O Lord, Son of David. How did she know? The desperate and the impoverished can pick up on things that others miss. And the start of the life of faith comes with the realization that there is a God and that you and I are not him. And therefore our need is revealed as reality and our inability to provide for our need is revealed as truth. We always need a God and we always need a savior. And those who remember that live better than those that, that don't. It's as simple as that. And the Lord may make us wait a while for the lesson to sink home. And Jesus said nothing to her in response at first. And do you believe that Jesus' silence is an answer? You know, can we really accept that his time is not our time? We sing that chorus, in his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. It comes from Ecclesiastes. Um, can we accept that his way is not our, the way we would do it? And that our urgency is not his requirement? All prayer is answered. All prayer is answered. And do we accept him as the answer or insist on a time or place or action that would have to be in our thinking for the, for the prayer to be answered? And this is the essential question of prayer. Is it the divine who that we're seeking 
or a material what that we're seeking. Let's say that you or someone you love is afflicted. You can pray for healing. That is our will, and we seek it to be his will, and it may well be because he is a compassionate, kind Lord, and he's a savior. But recall the bargaining prayer of Hezekiah when the prophet Amos told him that the illness was terminal. Remember me now, Lord. I implore you. I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. God gave him an additional 15 years of life, which he took for granted. And during that time, he squandered away the future of his nation and people in pride and complacency. It's a hard truth, but it's a shallow prayer that only seeks healing. Because there's a deeper level of prayer that seeks the Lord to be our healer. And this is worshipful prayer. You know, and I'm talking about the between, say, uh, uh, Lord, I need a healing. I need you to heal me right now. And Lord, would you please come and be my healer? This is worshipful prayer that widens our gaze from simply looking for a desired truth and includes the one who can provide that result. We can read a beautiful prayer like this in Jeremiah 17, 14. I always love this prayer. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, O Lord, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. This is not, however, the deepest, the deepest level of prayer that will sustain one in the darkest hour when both the result and the provider of that result may be in serious doubt to us. The deepest level of prayer is when we can say in grateful acceptance, Lord, you are my healing. You are enough for me. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Divine love is having its way with us when we acknowledge that our life is in God alone and from God alone. In God alone and from God alone and that he alone possesses us as we possess him. I, uh, my, my, my favorite psalm is Psalm uh, 62. And it's not one that would rank. I, the first scripture I ever learned was Psalm 23, which I recited in a Sabbath school one day in the adult Sabbath school at three years old and, and uh, was rewarded with a Tonka cattle truck. Uh, <laughs> but uh, complete with little rubber animals. Uh, <clears throat> For uh, Psalm 62, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? You know how a fence kind of, you know, it rocks. It's not steady to depend on. They only plan to thrust him down from his, his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And sometimes people just aren't the answer for us, as we know. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my glory. On, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. 
Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And the rest of the, I'll stop there, but the rest of it is well worth reading there. But listen to the prayer of the financially pressed. He had lost his fortune, really, in the Chicago fire. Grieving businessman Horatio G. Spafford, as a ship passed over the spot in the Atlantic Ocean, where his four daughters had recently drowned. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And we know those lyrics by heart. Note that Spafford's original lyrics were, Thou hast taught me to know, not to say. We sing it, Thou hast taught me to say. And to say, you say, so you say it. This was no, this is a heart knowledge where it's moved from your head into your heart. Everything, business, fortune, family, had been stripped away from this man, except his God. And God was enough for him whether he was in peace or he was in sorrow. When peace like a river attendeth my way, and you could put an oar in there, or when sorrows like sea billows roll. He knew it was well with his soul because God had him and he had God. And if that's not enough, if that's not enough for us, having God, nothing ever will be. The greatest funeral sermon I think I've ever heard consisted of a young black pastor standing up, reading through that, that passage in Thessalonians, you know, when the, when the, the uh, voice of the archangel should be heard and the Lord shall appear and we... And it came, down to the, it came down to that portion at the end where, and we will be with the Lord forever. And he said, he stopped. And there was silence for a while. And he said, and that will be enough. And he sat down. And I have never forgotten that. That was quite riveting. And uh, so... <clears throat> Spafford's prayer, or the prayer I read in, of David there in Psalm 62, is the prayer of the crucified life, resurrected to glory in the person of Jesus Christ, but the love of the Father. You know, that's what brought Romans 6, 4. Is that's what brought Jesus from that grave, was the glory of the Father, which was his love and his light, and his, pulled him right up out of that grave. This kind of prayer accept Jesus, accepts Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the life without reservation. It is a prayer that proclaims with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My favorite text, period, ever, is right there. Only those who know utter poverty of spirit just a poverty spirit, there's nothing else going on for him, can authentically pray this prayer. When we have run out of options, we've arrived at the narrow passageway that only Jesus Christ can take us through. This is the cross. And beyond that point, Christ possesses us, and we possess nothing of our own except Christ. And the woman was nearing the point of no return when only Jesus would be enough for her. She was making a scene, refusing to take Jesus' silence as her final answer. And now there's nothing that, that religious folk, good religious folk like are here in this tent, really hate worse than someone making a scene. Particularly a religious scene. His disciples came and urged him, send her away for she keeps shouting after us. 
You know, when our children are at risk, it's worth our crying out to the Lord and making a scene. A religion that insists on your pious decorum when the body and soul of your child is in danger is an abominable religion of child sacrifice. It's not the teaching of Christ who said, let the little children come to me and do not stop them for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. And we all are little children in Jesus' mind. We, he, he calls us that position because a child simply depends. And the Lord would have us tell him what is on our heart. Honest, unabashed prayer is the key to moving fences, getting over walls or breaking them down. The kind of prayer I'm talking about is not delicate or elegant. It can involve a a sharp, stinging exchange between the Lord and us. It's the kind of prayer that had Jacob rolling around in the desert, beside the dust and the rocks of the desert, beside that creek that night before he met Esau. It's the kind of prayer that you can rise up from and you're going to limp forever afterwards. But that's okay, because you know who caused that limp and who you're depending on. It is prayer that has to let our feelings and soul life be crucified with Christ while we receive whatever our Heavenly Father has for us beyond that point. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his book, The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Our complaints about unanswered prayer are always, are always, and without exception, selfish whining that we didn't get our way. Now, we may, we may want to do that. I, as I said earlier this week, say it to God, whether it's selfish whining or not, get it out there because God can handle it and God can work with you if you make yourself available to God. He will. But God always answers prayer. Silence can be the most eloquent of answers to the surrendered soul whose faith is in God, not prayer itself. You know that great song, Be Still and Know, taken from Psalm 46. And the strength of prayer is woven in faith in our God to whom we pray, and even if that faith is weak. And there's an interesting thing about faith. When he said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you know, faith is like... um, and I, you know, this may be too crass an analogy, but a woman is either pregnant or not. She's not on her way to becoming pregnant. She's either pregnant or not. There's either conception or not. Faith is like that. And that's why I said a grain of mustard seed. People say, well, you know, large faith, small faith, or anything else. Faith is faith. And take whatever faith you have, and he will, it's a gift, and he will, he will in, he's capable of increasing that faith so you get to a wider place of peace, but never despise whatever it takes you to put you on your knees in that prayer. If we lack faith in the one to whom we pray, why are we going through the motions of prayer? You know, if, if, it, uh, if we approach him behind a, a proud, pretentious smokescreen of evasive blather, you know, this kind of prayer, the oh Lord prayer, uh, that, that sometimes you... Uh, you hear because it's kind of for show and people think that's how a prayer for show should sound like. But if you come to him, what's he supposed to do with that? Honesty is absolutely, as I've said before this week, the one thing that God has to have from us and honesty can be blunt, even angry. God, why aren't you doing something here? Why don't I, 
Why don't I hear from you? Why is this pain continuing? You will find prophets like Jeremiah praying that way and others in the, in the scripture. True prayer is not an exercise in magical thinking and superstition. It's, it's an honest conversation with God about real concerns and desires. And so let's go back to our story. Jesus' answer to the woman was actually a statement that he made to his disciples when they asked him to send her away to shut her up. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And wasn't that keeping up the wall between them? Wasn't he saying, in effect, what I have for them over here isn't for you over there? You know, we would likely try to comfort and placate someone in that, that kind of distress before we would tell them the truth. And such comfort can be a false compassion. You never want to get in between, as Oswald Chambers says, and, and my utmost for his highest, you never want to get in between um, the Lord and an Eli. You know, Samuel, um, Samuel said, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to be talking to Eli at first, and then before he, he brought him the message, it was hard. And what Oswald Chambers is saying, you know, Samuel not carrying that message from the Lord was not exactly um, comfort. You, you, the Lord has to work with people. And when we stand in and try to be false grace, false providence and say, no, I'll spare you because, you know, the Lord could be hard, but I'm kind. Not a good place to be, but we kind of naturally go that way. Um, so we'd like to likely try to comfort and placate someone in this kind of distress before we would tell them the truth. And it's false compassion, but our Lord does not lie. And he will never tell us a situation is okay when it's not. He doesn't spare us the darkest valley. He walks us through it, and he walks with us, and that's the kind of God we have. He doesn't spare us the troubles of this world. He overcame them for us. He is not only our Savior, he is our salvation. You know, at some point, Jesus goes from a noun to a verb. God goes from a noun to a verb for us. Um, do you ever want to see that just happen before your very eyes? Read 1 Corinthians 1, uh, uh, verse 30. God doesn't delude his wisdom, so we will accept it. His wisdom comes with the full strength of truth for us before it brings peace to us. Listen to, uh, to the Apostle James in this point. The wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. The essential importance of understanding that God will speak truth to us before he comforts us is borne out by the reaction of this woman to Jesus' statement. I was, only sent, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She doesn't turn away and complain about his harshness and cruelty. Matthew says she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. Wow. What would cause that kind of response to a seemingly off-putting statement like Jesus just said, she was listening, and she heard a deeper truth in his description of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember, the Jews held out that salvation was their property. It belonged exclusively to them, and they, if they had stuck by their, their, their guns in terms of their covenant with the Lord, 
that probably would have been the case. Although he said, you're a light to all nations. So he had certainly had sheep of other flock and was pulling it in. But they held out. They had taken this down. This is ours. We possess this. And if you weren't a Jew, you were out of luck. And the way, the, the way they represented themselves, there were no lost sheep of the house of Israel. And let me speak to a sensitive point here. We are Seventh-day Adventists. And how many times do we say, we have the truth? We possess special knowledge about diet and exercise and God's law and the Sabbath, Bible prophecy, spirit of prophecy writings and last day events. And hear me on this. I'm not arguing. I am a Seventh-day Adventist, fourth generation. Uh, You know, where I am standing before you of my own conviction. But what's happening to our families and our youth? Why are we barely treading water over membership in the North American division? Why are we fighting so much with each other? Why are bitter theological divides widening instead of healing? Does possessing the so-called Adventist distinctives mean we, we need Jesus less because we can get by in our truth? I recently heard an Adventist university president and a senior theologian sadly muse that graduates of the university will talk about God in abstract terms but will rarely, if ever, mention Jesus Christ by name. And why don't they know Jesus Christ? Why don't they know the name was the question. To know the Father and Jesus Christ as Son, who he sent for us, is the very definition of eternal life, according to Jesus in John 17, 3. And so read, you know, we read the proud claims of institutional and congregational success and prowess in the Pacific Union Recorder each month and in the PR puff pieces of our schools and hospitals. And I'm talking, I'm a member of the establishment. I'm talking from that point of view. And I at once... Oddly enough, was edited the Pacific Union Recorder uh, for a summer. Uh, despite generations of, of, of warnings about Laodicean complacency, aren't we really caught in it? I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Doesn't that shoe fit, so to speak? Brothers and sisters, we are comfortable, way too comfortable. And we are deceiving ourselves. Our religious pride won't admit our need for mercy. Our self-sufficiency won't allow us to call for help. Our lack of humility turns our eyes in critical judgment on those around us in smugness that we are better than others and turn those same eyes on ourselves in kind of a self-loathing that we aren't keeping up with someone else. And what does our special truth wielded in this manner really do for us? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the original language this translates to out of the Greek, happy and secure are those who know they have nothing and are beggars to God for their very breath. Pneuma is the word, the air we breathe. For that's who gets the full use and enjoyment of everything God has to offer for eternity. Beggars for their very breath, acknowledging to God, God, I'm thankful for the next lungful of air that I've taken and all the lungfuls I've had along the way. When was the last time you prayed to the Lord for mercy? When was the last time you heard an Adventist congregational prayer for mercy? Who needs mercy when we have the truth? Are there not lost sheep in the house of Adventism as there were in the house of Israel? Do we not need to come to Jesus Christ, fall on our knees, and pray with honest hearts, Lord, help me 
And Lord, help us. The woman knew she could pray that prayer because Jesus, the man she believed was the Jewish Messiah, just admitted that there were lost sheep in the house of Israel. If some of the sheep within the walls of the fold were lost in heart and soul, then they were no better than those Gentile sheep like her who were wandering around outside. Inside or outside, all the sheep need a savior. And salvation depends Salvation depended then and depends now on the Savior's will and worthiness and not on their merit. And thus she had no greater claim on him than they did. If there was a Savior for them, there was a Savior for her, and this gave her hope. Lord, help me, she prayed. Her prayer, Lord, help me, is the most basic and I think therefore the best of all prayers. It admits our Lord and Savior's sovereign power and it confesses our need. He can and always will work with that. And this is the principle embodied in the ministry of our sympathetic high priest and intercessor described in Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And what is our time of need? I will guarantee it's not the time when we feel most worthy. It's those times when we feel alone, lost, stained, impure, angry, hurt, and exhausted. Lord, help me, is the prayer we can pray with confidence in those times. As vulnerable and honest as that prayer was, it did not elicit a touchy-feely response from Jesus. Jesus Christ doesn't offer us a great big easy button like the one in the Staples office product store advertisement. Christ is converting souls and changing hearts, not printing glib bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets. He wants us to desire an eternity with him, not just a quick fix. And he asked her a hard question in response to her request for help. Is it fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs? Didn't he call her a dog, a contemptuous, and in that setting even a racist epithet? He was making a tough point with hard words. Could she and all those who followed her right down to us on this tent this morning? Couldn't, could she see that salvation is neither a matter of birthright nor of fairness, but a gift from God? As Paul, a self-proclaimed Hebrew of Hebrews, would later say, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. It's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. The modern church conditioned by tolerant, uh, the tolerant blandishments of pop psychology and the exaltation of emotion over principle in our culture, is tempted to shield seekers from the hard choices of eternity. And that's not Jesus' way. And the woman understood his sharp metaphorical point, and she said, yes, Lord. She agreed with him. And then she made her case, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She might be a dog, but she had the same master as those who sat around his table, and his grace was enough for her. It's all about our sovereign God and his kindness. God knows what we need. One person's feast is another, another, one person's leftovers may be another person's feast. Little is much when the Lord has it. She'd reached the intimate depths of prayer life that I talked about a few minutes ago. Jesus Christ was enough for her. And she knew and understood what it means to pray, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. And now he gave her comfort and assurance. Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith, let it be done for you as you wish. 
and her daughter was healed instantly. Instantly. A lot's gone on in this story. Do you hear and see what it takes to... to uh, in, do, you, do we hear really and see that it takes a process to get us where he wants us? And that's why I tell you from knowledge gained from Scripture and experience that prayer is a relationship of love, not a one-time thing. And praying without ceasing means looking for your Lord and your Lord as, as your, your lover. That's not too intimate a word in that sense, in every situation and circumstance. And God knows the direction of your heart, the direction of your thoughts this morning. He knows the troubles and darkness that may be entrapping your children or your grandchildren, and your frustration and heartbreak about that. He knows if, if there are, are, are some here who are mired in plush but deadly spiritual complacency, seemingly secure behind a wall of doctrine and lifestyle expectations that were, that were erected maybe in substitute, in substitution for him. He knows if you're blocked by a great big fence of pride and hurt maybe, that you know what's keeping you out of where you belong because you don't measure up, you feel, and you're ashamed that you lack the purity and the spiritual qualities that would justify you crossing that fence. And if I've pricked your Okay, so if I've pricked your hearts this week or this morning at all about prayer, if you feel the slightest stirring of the Holy Spirit in your soul, that I simply ask you to bow your head with me now and pray, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, help me. And Lord Jesus, help us and help our people. You can trust Christ to be your salvation. You can trust Christ to be your healing. Trust Christ and no one and nothing else to be your answer. Before I pray, we've, we've run just a little long here. I would like to sing, though, uh, and we'll finish out with the songs and I'll just a short prayer and be done. And thank you so much again for this week. I'm glad to be with you. I have a longing in my heart. And then turn your eyes upon Jesus and when peace, when peace like a river. And, uh
goblin here below, I've a longing in my heart for him. I've a longing in my heart for Jesus. I've a longing in my heart to see his face. I've a yearning in my spirit, a burning in my soul. I've a longing in my heart for him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Let's sing that again. Peace like a river. for Jesus, for sending him as the answer of eternity. We thank you for the um, stripping away of the cross and the, the filling of the new life we have in you. I just pray for each of these dear people here, for their families, for their congregations, and their, their circle of friends, that they will leave this place filled and, and um, refueled for the continued walk that we are all on to eternity. But you cover us and you're our guide. And you have sent Jesus to make sure that we make it all the way home. And we thank you for that. And we leave here in that peace. 
In Jesus' name, amen.